Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Steve Donovan, the Director of Alumni Relations at Trinity. Thank you for joining us during your lunch hour, I trust, for many of you. Uh, thank you for joining us for another program of the Virtual Long Walk, which today is also being brought to us by Trinity's Women's Leadership Council. We've had a great run of impressive programs over the last two months, and thank the many of you who have been able to join us to hear from accomplished Trinity alumni and parents who make us all proud. Those programs are archived on the Virtual Long Walk website, so you can view them anytime at your leisure. In addition, we will soon be uploading them to Trinity's SoundCloud account. This is new for me, but pretty cool. So you can listen to them as audio files uh, during your summer travels and vacation time, uh, both of which we hope you're able to do. That's summer travel and vacation. After today, we'll take a break from our programming for a few weeks and look forward to coming back to you with additional talented alumni, parent, and faculty speakers after the July 4th holiday period. Today, we're pleased to be joined by a distinguished Trinity faculty member, Professor Rennie Falco, who will make us all wish we could be students again in her classroom. And we're equally pleased that a former student of hers has agreed to moderate the session. Brooke LePage graduated from Trinity in 2019 and majored in public policy and law. She wrote her senior thesis, advised by Professor Falco, on the implementation of Title IX. Since graduating, Brooke has moved to Washington, D.C., where she works as a policy associate at Future Ed, an education policy think tank at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. She will also be pursuing her Master of Public Policy degree at the McCourt School beginning this fall. Brooke is an active member of the Women's Leadership Council, and this past winter was selected as one of 50 women for the next 50 as part of the Women at the Summit celebration of 50 years of co-education at Trinity. Congratulations, Brooke. Brooke was a powerful presence on our campus, and it is now my pleasure to turn the stage over to her. Welcome, Brooke. Thanks so much for the introduction, Steve, and welcome everyone to today's program. Although she needs no introduction, I am pleased to introduce Professor Fulco, or Rennie, as she has begged me to call her since I graduated. Professor Fulco is the director of the Public Policy and Law Program at Trinity and an expert on women in the law, gender and discrimination, and constitutional law. This spring, Professor Fulco and her students began focusing their attention on the COVID-19 pandemic and questions at the intersection of law, public health, and policy. Today, Professor Fulco will be giving a 15 to 20 minute lecture titled, Who Makes the Rules During a Pandemic? After the lecture, she'll be answering audience questions on the matter. Please send any questions through the webinar Q&A feature as they arise during the program and include your name and Trinity affiliation. Well, that, with that, I will hand things over to Professor Fulco. Brooke, thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yes. <laughs> I just want to say how happy I am to be here today. I am thrilled to be here with Brooke. Um, and uh, it's, just, it's just such a wonderful Trinity thing to be able to do this. It's, it's wonderful. And I would like to thank, uh, and I will have to look at my notes, I'm old school, uh, as many of you know. Um, I would like to thank Laura McGill and Joelle Thomas and anybody else who's helping us get this program up and running. I, of course, want to thank Steve Dunneman, 
and also Melissa Bronzino Reagan for all of their help in the planning uh, that went into this, uh, which was substantial. Harder to do this than just to walk into the room, that's for sure. And as Brooke mentioned, uh, this talk uh, grows out of my spring class on federalism and public policy. And usually when I teach <clears throat> this class on federalism and public policy, we have lots of interesting uh, information to discuss uh, about the role of the federal government versus the states versus the localities. And we get to talk about a lot of very interesting issues you know, like should marijuana be legalized? Should there be more gun control? Uh, should there be a right to die? These are all questions that usually come up and they make for lively conversation. But this semester, we got to apply what we were learning in real time. And uh, as we switched uh, to remote learning, although there were some challenges in doing that, I would just like to say it was one of the most rewarding classes I have ever taught at Trinity. My students were fantastic. They were absolutely involved and engaged. And I am just delighted as the director of the public policy and law program to be able to say that they were able to apply what they learned. It was just terrific. Okay, so with the introduction out of the way, I would like to uh, just give you a brief outline of what I will be discussing today. Um, I will have a few words about federalism generally, and then I will talk about federalism in the time of a pandemic, and specifically this pandemic. And then I will respond um, to the original question posed in the title, uh, you know, why can you go to the beach in Florida? Uh, but not New Jersey or New York. And at the time I wrote the title, that was the case. Some of it has changed. Uh, and ask the question about what has happened. So part of what I would like to do here is talk about um, what the relationship between the states and the national government are supposed to look like, and then ask the question, what happened? So I will just begin briefly um, with a few, um, uh, what? Uh, reminders about the framers plan for federalism. And I hope all of you who had a class with me will remember this. Uh, but we know that the framers divided power among the states, the localities, and the national government. And that in fact, the powers of the national government are delineated in articles one through three of the Constitution. So Article One is the legislative branch, Article Two is the executive branch, and Article Three is the judiciary. In addition, the 10th Amendment reserves powers to the states, the powers that are not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, according to the 10th Amendment, nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And in part, the 10th Amendment was written to limit the power of the national government and make sure that the states would retain power under this new constitutional structure. Important among these powers are family relations, marriage, divorce, adoption, 
public health and safety and state and local law enforcement. And certainly the last two of those are, are extremely important powers uh, at this moment. And more specifically, states and local government are primarily responsible for maintaining public health and the spread of disease within their borders. So that's just important as we start out to keep in mind that in fact, it is the states that have that power and ordinarily, under no ordinary circumstances, are in charge. They're, the federal government does not come, become involved. However, the federal government does have powers when there is a more catastrophic kind of public health emergency. And so when we think about the relationship between the states, the local government, and the federal government, we need to keep in mind that this structure, the structure itself, has contributed to the current situation in which each state has its own rules about various aspects of the pandemic, particularly with respect to health and safety. It is important also to note that the president's authority to act is more limited. And therefore, when the president stated, however many weeks back it was, that he had absolute authority to impose regulations or change regulations, that was actually not true. And that's because under our federal system, it is the states and in some cases the localities that actually have that power. So the question that we need to address is what is it that the federal government should be doing during a public health emergency, given that the states have so much power and authority? And the normal expectation is that the federal government would coordinate a national response as has been in the, ca the case in the past. And if we look back even over the past few decades and we look at the various flu epidemics and we think about the response to those, those were public health uh, potential serious emergencies. And we know that the federal government did take the lead role. And therefore, um, one of the questions we'll be addressing in a minute is what happened here? Why did that not happen since that is the role that the federal government typically undertakes in a time of a public health emergency? And if we go back uh, to the polio epidemic, and I don't know if any of you saw there was a recent uh, PBS broadcast on the polio epidemic, what you will see is even back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, there was a huge, full-throated federal response to polio, quite different from what we saw today. The states would still have the ability to tailor their responses to local and community needs, but in a time of a serious public health emergency, the federal government is expected to take the lead particularly in a pandemic or other catastrophic events when the states and localities can be easily overwhelmed. 
And I would like to give a little bit of background on this if I could. Um, since 9-11, uh, preparedness and response protocols have been in place. The Department of Health and Human Services, rather the Department of Homeland Security, pardon me, Homeland Security was created to coordinate responses and George W. Bush established a domestic incident management system to prevent, prepare for, respond to, and recover from terrorist attacks and other major disasters. The ability to coordinate at all levels of government was put into place. And he also created a national plan that included protocols for managing public health emergencies. When public health threats are catastrophic, the president has the ability to initiate a federal response which may affect the country's national security. And why is this the case? Because pandemics and other disease outbreaks may not be able to cont be contained within state borders. In other words, no single state has the capacity to respond. In addition, the way in which any particular pandemic could affect any state or group of states may not be localized. And therefore, as we have seen in this pandemic, the, sp the spread of the coronavirus has come to all 50 states. And the reason that the federal government is expected to play an important role is because the federal government has a special capacity to collect data, inform the public about best practices, and quickly assemble a distribution supply chain to create networks of distribution of medical supplies and other needs to the states. And no single state or even regional combination of states has that same capacity. And I think it's very important for us to understand that this has been a bipartisan priority in the past. The plans that President Bush created were updated by the Obama administration. And I actually checked this morning and those plans remain on the CDC website. So the plans are still there, even though it does not appear that they have been implemented. So now the question is, what happened? And there are a lot of ways we can think about this question. Um, and I'm just going to offer a couple of possibilities here. Um, despite the plans available to the administration, the president and others were very slow to acknowledge the actual threat of COVID-19. And so the steps that already existed in the plans that I just mentioned were not implemented. And what that means is that the federal government did not play the role that was envisioned for it. The policy that was created by Presidents Bush and again updated by President Obama, did not imagine that the federal government would fail to play 
its designated role. And therefore, what we're seeing is that the states and localities are playing an outside role for which, in certain circumstances, they are simply not equipped. The states and localities often lack the resources and the expertise, as well as access to medicine, data, and other information that is necessary to protect their own citizens. And again, um, I think there have been um, comments on all sides of the political spectrum that the administration has been very slow to provide that information or sometimes has not provided it in the proper way. In addition, the president in some cases has contradicted his own public health officials who have tried to provide information, but in some cases have actually either been overruled or not allowed to present information to the public. And not just to the public, us, but also to the states and the localities uh, that are responsible ultimately for implementing the, the policies that are needed. And so the result is that we have had a patchwork of responses. And this is particularly um, problematic when we are dealing with a deadly virus that does not respect state or local boundaries. And so what we have seen is that not only are there not consistent policies across the 50 states, but even within some states, the policies are not the same. And I was uh, trying to get myself up to speed this morning and learned that now in some of the states that reopened early, like Florida and Texas, where certain regulations were not permitted or could not be mandated, now even the governors in those, in, in those states are permitting the localities uh, to uh, put in place more restrictive policies. And so we can see that the, what has happened is that this patchwork of responses has created confusion among the public. This patchwork of responses has also created inconsistencies that in the end make it more difficult for governors and mayors to implement the policies that they need. And again, we can talk more about this in the, in the Q&A, um, but I think it's important to understand that the failures at the beginning, the failures of the federal government to organize a, an effective and coordinated response meant, and I'm sure everybody in, who is listening understands this, meant that the federal government was not coordinating that distribution of testing and PPE and other materials that were needed. And as a result, in some cases, the states were actually in competition with one another. And one of the problems as well is that there has been some skepticism about the validity 
of the actual scientific evidence and the medical advice. And that has also contributed to confusion and to delays perhaps in implementing the policies that would have been most effective. And so in closing, what I would like to say is that uh, in my view, um, this response to this catastrophic emergency is actually um, an outlier and that we should think about it in that way, that this is not the way the federal government usually responds to disasters and to public health emergencies. And so what we need to try to understand is why did this happen? Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Fulco, for that um, really informative lecture. Unsurprisingly, I learned a ton from it and was taking a bunch of notes. Um, and with that, I will begin offering some audience questions. And just a reminder that um, you can still submit questions through the webinar Q&A feature and to also give your name and Trinity affiliation if you feel comfortable. Um, so our first question comes from Julie from Massachusetts, and it kind of gets back to the title of your lecture, Professor Folco, and she asks if it is possible for the president to invoke an executive order to ban public swimming in the United States, or if this would be a state's rights issue. Okay, great question. And at this point, it would not be likely that the president would implement such an order. It is far more likely that that would happen at the state level. And, and that goes back to what I said before. And at this point, the president himself has in effect turned over the authority to make these decisions to the states. And because the president has said that, and he said it on a number of occasions that the governors in charge are in charge. Now, if we think back a few months ago, initially he made different kinds of statements, but pretty quickly I think he shifted in part because you know that that it was it became clear that it would be the governors who would be making a lot of these decisions. So it is very unlikely, given that the president has turned this authority over not only to the states, but also to the localities in some cases, that, because that's what the states have done. So in my view, that would be a very unlikely outcome at this point. Our next question is um, from Barbara, who is sending it from South Dakota. Um, she sent us some information on South Dakota's coronavirus numbers. They had 84 new cases today, and I know I'm currently in Arlington, Virginia, and Virginia had about 400 new cases today. Um, so there's, you know, states with high and low numbers, but she points out that in South Dakota, they never had a shutdown order and things opened up pretty quickly. And she also pointed out that masks are pretty non-existent there. So her question is, how are rulemakers taking into account local conditions for making rules? Does one size fit all for the whole country work? Um, I think the answer to that is no. The, the simple answer to the second question is no. And that what we have seen across the 50 states is that there have been different responses. So if we look, for example, um, at the original hotspots in places like Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, 
Massachusetts, right? Some of the original states, and, and then of course on the West Coast, right, in Seattle, that we see that initially all of the responses were local. And those local responses in those cases, um, within a matter of a few weeks, when it was understood how uh, deadly this virus was and what needed to be done, you saw that the governors actually implemented lots of regulations and rules having to do with the state home orders, right? That there were many, many, many state home orders issued initially. And in most cases, those were statewide initially. And then what happened is that slowly, as the epidemic came under control in those states, or at least where there were fewer people entering the hospital, there were fewer people dying, there was less stress on the ICU units and so forth. Uh, what happened is we then entered into another stage where some of those orders were lifted and that's what we're looking at right now. And we're in different stages in different states. And I think that that is a very good way of understanding the good question that was asked, that different states are responding in different ways. They did respond in different ways from the beginning. Um, and that what you have to do to really answer the question is to look at what's happening in those individual states. Now, I'll just add one little caveat, which is that some states never really had complete stay-at-home orders. So some states had far more contact among citizens than other states did. And you know, we could talk about that, what that means. But there is no question that we have 50 different programs and plans. And the only um, other point I would add is that there were some states like the states in the Northeast that for a time were coordinating their plans, which is very interesting. And another element of federalism, creative federalism, that the states worked together because they understood that, that their citizens traveled back and forth between the boundaries and they needed to have consistent policies in the hope of, of slowing the spread of the virus. A few of the things that you said, Professor Folko, actually reminded me of a question that I wanted to ask you, which is how you see the pandemic or the role of federalism in the pandemic. Like, what does federalism look like after the pandemic? Are states going to continue increasing their power in a sense? Like, how does this impact the institution of the presidency and the role of states' powers? Is this pandemic going to change federalism in the future? Wow. Such a challenging question. I should have. I should have known. I should have sent that to you before the webinar. <laughs> oh no, you're asking a great. This is perfect. Um, you know, Brooke. To be honest, I think it depends. I think it depends on the next election. I think it depends who's in office, and I think that if you talk to the governors of states that felt they did not get enough federal help my sense is they would like to see um, more action at the federal level to ensure, should this happen again, that they would get the help they need. In other words, I think there will be a lot of attention. Again, I don't think it's gonna happen before the, the, the election, but um, if Trump is not reelected, because I think if Trump is reelected, I'm not sure it could happen in the same way, 
But if Trump is not reelected, I think that um, there will be um, a lot of pressure to rethink these plans that exist, to ask questions about why those plans were jettisoned, why one of the offices in the White House was closed that dealt with these kinds of problems. In other words, I think that there will be a tension on it. But I, am, I think if you were to talk to somebody like Governor Cuomo, and this is not a promotion for Governor Cuomo, it's just he's somebody who's talked about this a lot, he felt very strongly that there should have been much stronger and better coordinated federal action. And so maybe there's a role for Congress in that, right? That if you could somehow get Congress to agree, I think there might be buy-in from a lot of um, members of the House and Senate who understand that this did not go smoothly. We have a great question from Scott, who is class of 08. Um, do you think there's a way for a federal statutory scheme um, to be developed under the Commerce Clause? Um, he also asks, otherwise, if the <laughs> if the federal government can tie standard pandemic responses to federal funding? Um, okay, I certainly think that, um, that it would be possible to use the Commerce Clause, um, you know, if you're talking about Congress actually passing legislation, absolutely, because there are a whole variety of um, potential initiatives that, 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 that could be put into a bill. And in fact, I just read an article about this, but I put it aside. So if Scott wants to email me, I will send this to him because I, I don't want to misspeak. But I just read an article about the potential use of the, of the Commerce Clause. And can you just repeat the second part again? The, um... Um, if the federal government can tie standard pandemic responses to federal funding. Um, yes, because it, again, if it's, if it's legislative, there are lots of ways that Congress can tie funding to specific actions that states would take. Now, again, um, let's pick something really controversial for the moment. I don't know that they could uh, tie funding to something like uh, you have to keep all your gun shops open or you have to, you know, keep your churches closed. I mean, I don't, I don't think it would work in that way. But I do think because we know that with all federal legislation, there are ways to require right? And this is part of federalism. There are ways, there are carrots and there are sticks, right? So if we think about funding um, for uh, highways, we know that there are certain actions all states must take. You have to have a certain uh, legal age for drinking, right? And if you don't have that, you can lose your federal funding. So that's a great question. And if Scott gets back to me, I'll try to find that article for him. We have another um, great question. What is the closest health crisis in the past that would be a good comparison to the current COVID crisis? You mentioned a few, Professor Foucault, one or two during your lecture, but are there any others that jump out or just general crises that in terms of the scope that, were, that would trigger federal response or that have triggered a federal response? Sure, and there were two ways to, to sort of say, okay, so what's comparable? Right, so if we wanna look at polio, which is a long time ago, 
I think polio was a great analogy. And again, I recommend that uh, PBS um, um, video on it. It's just really terrific when there was a, again, a huge, full, ongoing, not only um, a, a public health response in terms of how to deal with it on the ground, but also a messaging campaign. And some of you may know that that's where the March of Dimes, when it was created, was during the polio um, epidemic. Um, in terms of more recent um, uh, uh, um, epidemics or potential epidemics, there was SARS, right? And some people may remember that. There was Zika, there was Ebola. Now in each of those cases, the preparedness team at the federal level got right into action. And as a result, they were prepared for when there was an outbreak here, when there were even a few cases. And so we didn't have the kind of spread in part, and this is not the only reason, so I do not wanna say this is the only reason, but in part because all the teams at the federal level were mobilized and were informing the states about what to do. So there are precedents for this. We have a question from John from the class of 86. Oh, John, I know <laughs> who you are. I'm just gonna say it. I, I, I hope you're well. It, 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 I mean, I will not, tears will not come, but I just want you to know um, I'm delighted you're here. You're getting called out here a bit, John. <laughs> um, okay. His, his question is, given the concerns of many about creeping authoritarianism, how does a president impose a command to stay home or wear masks or any similar infection prevention measure? Great question. Um, what would I say? It's a simple answer. I would not, if I were the president or if I were concerned about that or if I were advising a president, I would say to the president, stay in your lane. And your lane is not public health. Your lane is not medical advice, right? Your lane is to lead the country, to mobilize people. And what I would say, and, and again, there's a whole literature, if people are interested, on messaging during pandemics. In other words, what should you say to people? And what you want is a consistent message that comes from trustworthy individuals who are in the arena of public health. And so I, I, I actually think there, that could be a simple answer, would be to not have it come from the president himself, but have it come from trusted individuals who actually have the credentials to determine what the policy should be and to be able then to explain it to the public. And in, in my view, that's one of the biggest tragedies of this, this whole thing is that you didn't get that good trusted information at the beginning. Our next question is from Jamie from the class of 2006. Um, I think this is a great question and I've been thinking about this a lot, especially in New England where states are very small and people are constantly traveling over borders. But the question is, what are your thoughts on the further complications brought on by interstate traveling and business where states seem to be soft peddling the language that could be seen as restricting cross-border travel? Also, do you foresee legal challenges under the 10th Amendment or the Commerce Clause coming from people seeking to challenge stay-at-home orders? Okay, hi, Jamie. Um, good to hear from you. Um, 
so like a reunion a <laughs> Paul reunion I know you forgive me people if I don't know you I love you anyway so don't don't take it personally welcome to our tribe <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly it's all good it's all Trinity um, what the first part of the question can you just read because they're, they're, they're closely related Right, so, so the first question um, is, what are your thoughts on further complications brought on by interstate traveling and business where state, states seem to be soft peddling the language that could be seen as restricting cross-border travel? Yes, so part one, I think, I think there will be some problems with this and I think it's one of the, um, I know just because uh, I follow what's going on in the Northeast pretty closely, and I know that the governors of all the Northeast states are really worried about this. They're really concerned. What happens when we get to the stage where we're opening up and people are traveling back and forth? And what does it mean in terms of mass transit and all of that? And I do think that, um, I, I, I think that they are deeply concerned. And I, I think the other side of it is, what will businesses do? So I see it as both a, a problem for the governors, and it is a problem, and again, I think we're fortunate in the Northeast that they are collaborating and coordinating. But it's also a question, I mean, I have heard from a whole lot of people who have told me that, um, that in terms of their businesses in the Northeast, they're not going back into the office. So there are gonna be different kinds of businesses, it seems to me, that are well situated to continue to have people work at home and then others where it's far more difficult. So I think it's hard to give an answer, you know, that will fit all of these circumstances. But I do think that where there can be regional cooperation, I think you will get the best results. And then the second part was, do I think there will be challenges? Right? Legal challenges under the 10th Amendment or the Commerce Clause? Yes, and I, again, this is uh, one of the articles that's over here that I, that I haven't gotten to yet, Jamie, so write to me. But there are already some challenges. There have been some challenges. And um, this might be a good place for me to, to put this in. Um, some of you may know that a little over a week ago, 10 days ago, um, there was a case from California where some of the clergy who belong to a specific church in California, challenged the Governor Newsom's order. And that order limited the number of people who could attend gatherings. And um, the, the challenge to that order um, was the following, that there are other businesses that are open. Um, there are other kinds of gatherings that are permitted uh, and um, as a consequence, these religious individuals argued that since there's a First Amendment protection for religious free exercise, right, that they were quite upset that they, their gatherings were limited, very limited, while there were other places where, um, especially in the business sector, that were open. And um, the, the court did not decide the case per se. The um, religious leaders wanted an injunction to stop Governor Newsom from enforcing his order. And Justice Roberts uh, wrote the opinion here, it was close. And Justice Roberts said that under the conditions of a pandemic, 
a governor like Governor Newsom has the power and authority to impose those kinds of restrictions on gatherings. And he was very clear about why. And he was also clear about the difference between having a liquor store open, which can limit the number of people who come in at a time where you don't really have a gathering of people as they in California. People, you know, there were very strict rules about how you could get your liquor. A lot of it was just curbside. And so he drew those distinctions, but he did not answer the actual religious freedom question. But I think it's an interesting guide if we want to think about how the courts might be looking at this. Our next question is from Brandon from the class of 2018. And you touched on this a bit, um, Professor Folko, when you answered my questions and mentioned that a lot of this hangs on the election in November. But his question is, given the concerns behind the president's actions and his push to state level responses, do you think states will begin to take a greater role in these types of pandemics, such as in a resurgence of cases later this year or in the future? If so, and if these states take a stricter, if so, and if these states take a stricter response going forward, will President Trump attempt to recollect or regain power? Okay. Hi, Brandon. You, you're trying to, it's like we see if we can stump her. That's what this is. Um, okay. This is a really important question, though. Um, I, I am not sure um, if the states, if it's, if it's so much a question of power, which I think was part of what he was saying in that question, right? I think what the states are going to do, I have two possible ways of thinking about this. One is, I think all the states that have been proactive are going to continue to do that. In other words, once the ball got thrown in their court and they had to figure out what to do, they did begin to plan for what would come ahead they did develop at, you know, plans for reopening and the stages and all of that, right? And I think states will continue to do that. And what I wonder, actually, is if some of these regional alliances, like the one in the Northeast, there's one in the Northwest, there's one in the Midwest, if those may actually remain after this pandemic passes, which I hope will be very soon. But I actually wonder if that may be part of what happens is that what you get is more state to state cooperation. And I think that would be a very interesting outcome um, because I think the states have actually been effective in their coordination in a lot of ways. Our next question is from Liam. His question is, would you categorize it as a success for federalism and decentralization that the states were able to mobilize their own quarantine responses in lieu of a national one? Okay, Liam, um, hi. I don't think I would necessarily call it a success for federalism. I would be more inclined to say that, and, and if you wanna know why, it's because when federalism works best, there is collaboration and cooperation. And there's a theory about this in public policy and political science, it's called cooperative federalism. And it's the idea that what you want is for the federal government and the states to kind of be what, in, that they're on the same page. And I think what we saw here, and the reason I would say no to the question is because I don't think I saw cooperation at the level that it needed to occur. 
Our next question is from David from the class of 89. Um, he asked Professor Folco if you could comment on the constitutionality of states governors initiating lockdowns on businesses, preventing people from earning a living um, and enjoying personal freedoms. Okay, David, I would be happy to answer your question. Um, again, under the powers that state governors have um, during uh, public health and safety emergencies, um, in my view, they definitely had the power to impose restrictions. And I understand your question. I know that there are cases that will be litigated about this. Uh, some of them are already in the courts. Uh, but it seems to me that if, if the question is, do the governors have the power to do that in the interest of public health, I would say, yes, they have the power. And I think the interesting question, and this is something you know we could all think about, is what are the limits of that power? For how long can this go on? In other words, is there a temporal dimension, right? And going back, I think, to one of the very first questions about South Dakota, right? should there be differences between places where you really don't have widespread disease? Should those places be treated differently than New York City, for example, right? And those were questions that were asked repeatedly of Governor Cuomo, right? You know, why can't the places in upstate open up? And one of the answers to that, just if you want an answer and you may not accept it, but one of the answers to that is that people can drive from New York City where there is a lot of disease to a place upstate where there isn't a lot of disease and then infect people upstate potentially. And so that, that's where it becomes really complicated. Next, we have a really fantastic question from Joe. He asked um, Professor Folko what you think the Black Lives Matter movement and the COVID pandemic, how those are affecting one another. Oh, great question, Joe. Um, I do think they are affecting one another. I think that we have, um, what? Uh, we have a pandemic and we have a crisis that is not a new crisis, but it is a crisis that has gotten, I would say, a much bigger spotlight on it. And I think that, um, I mean, there are lots of ways we could talk about this, but I think, I mean, I tend to be a half full kind of person. So I'm gonna go with that, that I'm, I'm a little more optimistic than some. And I think that there is actually a yearning in this country um, among lots and lots of people um, for a sense of unity during this very difficult time. And, and I, I think people were feeling that before the you know, racial incidents over the past few weeks. And I think that in a way, this pandemic, which where people were already attuned, I think, to wanting to feel unified and have a common purpose intersects with this particular issue at this moment. And I don't know, Brooke, do you want to add to that? Oh, sorry, I was reading for our questions. <laughs> do you, do I mean, just, just say the last sentence that you said, Professor yeah, Foucault. Yeah, just that people are really yearning for um, a sense of unity and a sense of common purpose that it, things have been so chaotic 
And I think there's an intersection that people can feel in a way that maybe when you're going about your regular business, you don't feel a sense of common purpose and a desire for that. Right. And, and something you said reminded me of something I've been seeing, which I personally wholeheartedly agree with, is that we have essentially two public health crises going on at the same time. Um, and, you know, we've been seeing that people of color are um, having COVID at much higher rates than, than, uh, than white people. And um, those, it's, I think that the coronavirus pandemic is really just elevating the systemic inequities that our system has been plagued with for so long. But I think the COVID pandemic is really highlighting them in a way that almost opens the policy window <laughs> that we learned about in our public policy classes for the Black Lives Matter movement, which I think is really fantastic because it, it, it's a policy window that hasn't been open this wide for some time. So I think it's I think it's time to have these conversations. And I think this is a great question, Joe, you're asking the right questions. How do these two public health crises intersect with one another? Because it's just been blatantly clear to me that, that they do. Yeah, great question. Um, our next question is from Joe Barkley, who is a alum of the class of 70 and a parent of a student from the class of 93, and Mary Lou, who is also a parent of a student from the class of 93. Could you expand on the fact that the federal government did not centralize the acquisition and distribution of PPE and other essential materials so that states were forced to forge for their own supplies? This process caused substantial delays and higher costs, as well as untold deaths. Yes, I can say something about that. And I want to say hello to all of you. Um, the, I, I mean, I, I do not believe I am making a political statement when I say that the distribution, the acquisition and distribution of medical supplies, you know, including PPE, including testing, uh, was incompetent. I don't think there's anybody who will really argue about that. Um, and it seems to me, if we wanna ask why, um, we have to look at, I think, the priorities of this administration. As I mentioned earlier, the administration eliminated a very important office that would have been very much involved with this. I think the administration minimized, in some cases, the role of the actual public health professionals. And I think, unfortunately, there were people in the administration initially who either misunderstood what this pandemic could do or misunderstood how quickly it would spread. And again, we know that there was faulty information coming, you know, from different places. So I'm not saying that the administration, you know, um, had perfect information. It certainly didn't. But I think the decision not to defer to the public health professionals and the people in emergency management who know how to do this, right, um, had catastrophic consequences in many, many ways. And so I think we can take it back to the decisions that were made at the very beginning about how seriously to take this problem and about what needed to be done and that it could not be managed simply as a matter of public relations. The virus was gonna spread no matter what you said. 
And I think it took a long time for people to understand that. We have many more great questions. So if we're not able to get to yours today, um, Professor Fulco has graciously offered to allow people to follow um, up with her over email. Um, but I wanted to ask this last question, Professor Fulco from Dee Berman. Um, they suggest changing courses here, but say the Supreme Court this week has expanded the rights of LGBTQ Americans under the Civil Rights Act. And also today just killed President Trump's plan to end DACA. What's going on? Is the court going liberal or are these aberrations? Hi, Dan. Okay. I hope everybody is okay if I answer, you know, that, that, that if I answer this question just because I think it's an important one. Um, what do I think? I think we have a very prudent Chief Justice um, who understands the moment. Um, who does not want his own court to be a center of controversy, especially at this time. And I also think that Chief Justice Roberts uh, is, is very mindful um, of what? Of some of the in, the, in the case of the DACA, uh, which is the, the deferred action. It's the dreamers case that was just decided for people who haven't seen that yet today. <clears throat> and it seems to me that he didn't, he didn't fully decide it. It's kind of like the census case last year. And what Justice Roberts said is you didn't follow your own rules and your own regulations about how you make these decisions. And so you need to go back and do that. He didn't say the dreamers are here forever. What he did really was to reprimand the government for not properly complying with the rules and regulations that it needed to, to observe. And so I see it as narrow, um, but nevertheless, a little bit about, you know, you didn't follow the rules and that's what they said with the census case last year. I think with the other case that many of you may have heard about, which is the, um, you know, the case about LGBTQ rights this week, um, that is a much more, um, I think, dramatic decision, although there will still be challenges from religious organizations. But what six members of the Supreme Court, including Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch decided, Justice Gorsuch wrote this opinion, right? And what did he, what did the court decide? They decided that LGBTQ individuals are covered by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that is huge. Again, um, what I foresee are challenges, especially from religious organizations that are very, very unhappy. And so bottom line, Dan, I don't think he's gone liberal but I think he wants to be a good steward of the Supreme Court. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for your great questions. Um, this has been a really engaging session. And if we weren't able to get to your questions, like I said, Professor Fulco graciously offered to allow people to, or encourages rather, people to follow up, ask your questions, um, and ask for any literature that she has discussed. Um, and with that, I just wanted to thank everybody for joining us today and especially thank the Trinity Women's Leadership Council and the Alumni Relations Office for hosting this and many very fantastic events for the Trinity community. There's 
nothing better than community during this time as I've found, which is why I've been joining all of these. So this is a real treat for me. And thank you especially to Professor Fulco for providing us with a very engaging and informative session. We are so grateful to have you. And with that, I hope everybody stays safe and has a great rest of your day. Thanks so much for joining us today.